Well, good morning, Gateway family. Good to see you on this beautiful spring morning. Um, for you allergy sufferers, it's okay if you cough and sniff through the service this morning. I know it's that time of the year, and we are grateful that you all are here. We're continuing our journey through the Gospel of John this morning, and if you, hopefully you've seen so far as we've worked through John that the key word of the book is to believe. This book was written that we might believe, and so I hope you've seen the idea of believe coming throughout the whole book. Now, last week, John gave us a review of the gospel, a review of everything he'd been talking about in the previous three chapters. And I hope you've had some time this week to think about that question of what does your life reveal about what you really believe Jesus is? What does your life really reveal about who you believe Jesus is? And I hope over the last six days you've had some time to think about that as you go about work or school, time in the neighborhood, time at home with family, friends. What does your life reveal about who you believe Jesus is. We're going to see more of what it means to believe today, so turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 4, or scroll in your Bible app to find John chapter 4. We're going to be looking today at the familiar text of the story of Jesus interacting with a Samaritan woman at the well. Now, when I set out through John, I intended to do all 42 verses of this chapter in one sermon. Now, I talked fast, but I realized this week I can't talk quite that fast. And so we're going to do just the first 30 verses of this this morning as we look at the story of Jesus and this woman of Samaria at the well. As we get to these first 30 verses of John chapter 4, I want you to listen for three things as we read the text this morning. The three things I want you to listen for, first of all, what, what, what evidence is there of this woman resisting believing in Jesus? What are the obstacles? What are the evidences of her struggle to believe in Jesus? Second of all, what does Jesus give to her? And then third, how does what he gives her change her? So, okay, that's what you're looking for as we read this morning. What are the obstacles to her belief, the evidences of the obstacles to her belief? What does Jesus give to her? And then how does Jesus, what he gives to her, how does it change her and lie that? So as we come to John chapter 4, starting in verse 1, can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Though Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse 7, there came, from a woman, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. I have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all they ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word that you've given to us this morning. And Lord, I pray as we work through John chapter 4 this morning that your word would come alive to us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, you would fill us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive the gospel that is so throughout this text. Help us understand and help us believe that we might have life in your name, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated there. As we work through this this morning, I want you to see one main idea from John chapter 4. And it's simply this. In spite of her resistance, Jesus gives a Samaritan woman living water that changes her. In spite of her resistance, Jesus gives the Samaritan woman living water that changes her. Now, before we talk about those kind of ideas, that main idea, what, what is the setting? Well, what is going on here? In John chapter 4, look back in the first few verses of me, in chapter, verses, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, Jesus has been in Judea. His popularity is growing, and the Pharisees are curious. They were curious about John the Baptist. Now they're curious about what's going on with Jesus. And for a reason that we can only speculate, Jesus leaves here and travels to Galilee. And different people have different ideas of why he left and what was going on with the Pharisees, but that really is speculation. We know from the Scripture simply that he left. And that brings us to verse 4. And he, Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. Now some background here for you that makes this verse make more sense. At this time, the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. I mean, they hated each other greatly. Why? Well, there was a big empire at the time called the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire had taken the people who lived in Samaria and deported them out throughout the rest of the empire. And they brought people from the rest of the Assyrian Empire and brought them back to the land of Samaria. And when those people came, they brought their own false gods with them, their own false worship with them. And they heard about the God of the Bible, the God that the Jews worshipped, and they mixed that with their own worship. So they were worshipping Yahweh, but they were also doing all their false worship, and they mixed it together. And we don't have time for this morning, but if you want to read about that, you go to 2 Kings chapter 17, and there in 2 Kings 17, they'll tell you more of the background of, of what happened with this kind of mixing of religion. Now, the Samaritans eventually dropped the worship of these false gods that had been imported throughout the empire, and they only worshipped Yahweh. But it was really different than much of Judaism. In fact, the Samaritans only, only believed the first five books of what we would have as the Old Testament. They only believed in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They rejected the entire rest of the Old Testament. They did not believe in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and so they built their own temple in a place called Mount Gerizim as a contrary temple on that. Yet in spite of the differences, they believed the Messiah was coming. Well, the bitterness was so great between the Jews and the Samaritans that at one point when the, when the Jewish people had returned from exile and were trying to rebuild their temple, the Samaritans actually offered to help build it. And you go to the book of Ezra and read in Ezra, and the Jewish people rejected They wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans' help in rebuilding the temple, though they probably needed it. And that was Ezra chapter 4. That bitterness was also so great that the strictest of Jews would not even travel through. If you're going from Judea to Galilee the straightest shot would be to pass through Samaria. And Jews would go way out of the way to go around to avoid having to associate with the Samaritans. And so with that in context here, Jesus, who's a Jew, verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. 
Why did he have to pass through? Well, it was obviously the shortest route, but most Jews went around. When you're reading the book of John and you see the word had to or must, in the book of John, this is normally a word associated with mission. He had to do something because of his mission in here. You think about this, we already saw it back in chapter 3, verse 14, where we're looking through the familiar text of John 3. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The must was a must of necessity, a must of divine mission. We're seeing this several more times we go through John. When it says Jesus must go through here, it was a must of mission. He had to go through here because he was doing what God had called him to do. The, very, the new birth, he's just been talking to Nicodemus about that radical transformation from above. He must go through Samaria to offer to them as well this new birth, this transformation from above to give it to people besides just the Jews. We get to verse 5 and we see that he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. He arrives at a very historical place. If you go back to Genesis 33, you can see the background of this text. So just to remind us from this, John is telling us history. It's not just some nice story. This is what actually happened, that Jesus, the Son of God, actually came to earth and here had to because of what the God the Father called him to do, walk through Samaria and he arrives at this place where there was a well there. And notice his state when he arrives, verse 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting there beside the well. It's about the sixth hour. It's about noon in the day, and it says he's weary. When you go back to what we talked about at the beginning of John, John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When Jesus took on human flesh, he took on our whole human experience here apart from sin. Jesus was literally tired. Jesus was literally thirsty. This wasn't some pretense like he can identify with us in all of our experiences because here he was, the Son of God, literally tired, literally thirsty, sitting by a well here. It reminds us that he is fully God and fully man. With that being the context, we have this interaction that now takes place between Jesus, this Jew, and a Samaritan woman at the well. And it's there that we have this profound idea that in spite of her resistance, Jesus is going to give to her living water that changes her. So let's think in, in along those things. First of all, let's think about the Samaritan woman's resistance to who Jesus is and to what he is offering to her. When I look at this text and I look at the Samaritan woman, I see three things in this text that I believe lead to her resistance of who Jesus is. And we're, let me give them to you the three things and we're going to talk about those and show them to you from the text. The first thing I see is her obstacle to believing here is her background, who she is. The second thing that is the obstacle to her believing is her religious practice, her religious tradition, and third is her personal convenience. So again, her three obstacles to believing here are going to be her background of who she is, her identity, if you will. It's going to be her religious practice, her religious tradition, and then third, her own personal convenience. So let's take this one time, her background. Look at verse 9. We're going to kind of jump around a little bit this morning to help you see these things. So go down to verse 9 here this morning. Jesus offered her for a drink, or offered to get a drink from her, and here's her response in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She really had kind of three strikes against her, if you want to think of it that way. She was a Samaritan. Jesus was a Jew. We already talked about that. Second of all, she was a woman. Jewish rabbis never interacted with women in public. They were too fearful of what people might think and perceptions. So there was no interaction between men and women, the Jewish rabbis at the time. But then third of all, she was a sinner. She was here at a time of day that most women would not be at the well probably because of shame. This is a shame-based culture, which is hard for us in our American culture to understand in a lot of ways. It's a shame-based culture. And so she probably did not really want to be seen because she had the reputation of having all these husbands in her past on this. And friends, those barriers are not that different than barriers to people today. 
you probably all know someone who thinks God can't forgive me, God can't love me because of, in the name of some sin in their past or some sin they're struggling with now or because of something they've done or because of their identity. And they hold up the very same barriers that the Samaritan woman held up. God can't love me because of who I am, because of my past, because of my sin. The particulars may be different, but it's the same obstacle to receiving Jesus today. The second thing that I believe hindered her from receiving Jesus was her religious practice, her religious tradition. Because if you notice in this text, she's not irreligious. She's not an atheist here who doesn't believe in God. She claims she believed in the same God of the Jews, though they would interpret things differently here. She can talk the talk of, the, of debating places of worship. She knew that she believed something. And the sobering thing in that, friends, is she's close, but she's so very far away in this. Look at verses 11 and 12. This is in response to where Jesus basically says to her, I would have given you living, living water. Listen to how she responds in verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. What she's realizing is that anyone who could keep this promise that Jesus is making of living water would have to be someone pretty great. And she cannot in her mind imagine how anyone can be greater than Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, who was the father of the Jewish people. In her mind, no one could be greater than her spiritual ancestry here of Jacob. And she cannot imagine anyone being greater. Therefore, she sees nothing special in Jesus because of her religious tradition. You see this again later on in verse 19 and 20. So jump down to verse 19. This is after Jesus has confronted her with her sin and, her, and all of her multiple marriages here. And here's her response to him. Sir, verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on a mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Again, the debate was between where the temple should be for worship. Now, why would she bring this up? Jesus didn't mention anything about worship. Jesus was mentioning to her her past and all of her husbands and, and the immorality and her life. Why would she bring this up? Because, friends, it's a lot easier to debate theology than deal with our sin. It's a lot easier to, to debate theology than to deal with with our sin. She was so content in her religious tradition when Jesus gets really personal into her heart about her past. She goes, well, let's have this debate about where the place of worship is. Should it be the temple in Jerusalem? Should the temple be in Mount Gerizim? And, and don't miss in that that she could talk the talk. She was religious, but her religious tradition was blinding her to who Jesus was. Again, friends, that's a sobering warning for us because being religious cannot save us today. Again, you probably all know people who their obstacle to believing in Christ is their church involvement. Their obstacle to believing in Christ is their social community involvement of all the good they're doing to help the poor in the community, to help the needy in the community. It's going to look different for different people, but it's the same obstacle. They're relying on their religious tradition instead of relying on the Christ who we're supposed to follow. The third obstacle, I mentioned there were three that keeps her, I believe, from Jesus, is her personal convenience. Look at verse 15 as we jump around a little bit today. Jesus has just offered her, at the end of verse 14, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The very last thing he says to her is, I can offer to you eternal life. And her response is not like, great, I want eternal life. Her response is verse 15, sir, give me this water so I don't be thirsty. I have to come here to draw water again. Jesus offers something eternal, and she just doesn't want to have to walk back to the well in the heat of the day again. She can't get the eternity of this offer because she's focused on convenience, of not carrying a jar, not being stuck in the heat, and she misses the wonder of what Jesus really offers. But again, is that very much different from today? How many people do you know whose obstacle to believing in Jesus is their personal convenience? The Jesus they follow is a Jesus who they believe is going to make them wealthy, 
make every trial go away, give them all this prosperity. They want the Jesus of their mind who's going to simply fix life's problems, not the Jesus who calls us to worship him. And today people miss Jesus for the very same reason that she was missing him as well. And so with those three things, her background, her religious tradition, and, with, and as well her convenience, she's blinded, she's spiritually blind to who this Jesus is who's standing right in front of her. But our main idea, in spite of her resistance, and this is deep-seated resistance, in spite of that resistance, Jesus still gives the Samaritan woman living water that changes her. So think about this idea of the living water that he gives her. Notice, as we look through his response, how patient he is with her, and notice how he pursues her. And don't miss that in this text here. She does not initiate these things with Jesus. Jesus initiates these things with her. He's the one who breaks that initial barrier and goes to her and says, give me a drink, when, the, when she would have never had a, been able to come to him and do that. Listen to how he replies to all of her objections. And let's start back with verse number 10 here. So John chapter 4, verse 10, as Jesus responds to her with a living water. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Catch the two things in here. First, he's offering her a gift, a free gift. This is not something she can work for. This is not something she can earn. Jesus is offering to her something that is free, that is given by God. And this should sound familiar to what we saw just in the last few weeks with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 of receiving the gift of radical transformation, being born again. It's not something anyone can earn. It comes from heaven. It is a gift from above. But what is the gift here specifically in verse 10 is the gift of living water. Well, that doesn't really make sense in imagery to us, but to the Jews at the time who are really concerned with ceremonial washing and purification, they wanted living water. Living water was water that flows. Think of the TV commercials and a crisp mountain stream flowing through the Rockies. It looks so pure and white. That's the imagery of living water. Now think of an Alabama pond here in Montgomery that's stagnant and murky and mosquitoes are flying around it. That, that's dead water, right? That's the imagery to the Jews. And when it came to ceremonial washing, when it came to all the things they would do to try to present themselves pure and be a worshiper before the Lord, would you rather, if you were a Jew, get your water from that clear mountain stream that's living or from that stagnant Montgomery pond that's got mosquitoes flying around? Of course, they, they were drawn to the living water, the water that was alive in their minds, and that's what they wanted to use for their ceremonial washing. And so Jesus is offering her a very clear image. I am going to give you living water, Water that will cleanse you from your defilement. Water that will cleanse you and make you a worshiper. But he elaborates even more on that in verse 13. Jesus said to her, again, after another one of her objections, he patiently explains, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That's the physical water of the well. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is offering her something that will permanently satisfy. He's giving her something that will meet her deepest longings now and forever. And again, something that is received as a gift, not something that can be conjured up. Now, what is it? Well, it's not Jesus. And before you think I sound too heretical here, there's no I am statement here. John is full of I am statements of I am the bread of life. Notice Jesus doesn't say I am the living water here. Jesus says I give the living water, not I am. What is the living water? I guess we should say who is the living water? It's the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is offering here is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the one who fills each new believer, the one who remains with us always, the one who purifies us, the one who makes us acceptable worshipers, the one who secures eternal life for us. So with that in mind, again, listen to verse 10 and verse 14. Let's go back to verse 10 first with the, the thought of the Holy Spirit being the gift of living water. Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God 
And who is this saying to you, give me a drink? You would have asked him, Jesus, and he, Jesus, would have given you living water. And then go down to verse 14 again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so if I could mid-sermon change our main point a little bit. In spite of her resistance, Jesus gives the Samaritan woman the Holy Spirit who will change her. He gives her the Holy Spirit who will change her. Yes, this is before Acts, this is before the Holy Spirit has fallen in full across all peoples, but yet the Holy Spirit is working, removing blinders. And notice very early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is not only engaged the Jews and the Jewish leaders, he is willing to, this must, divine necessity, go to Samaria to make sure that people who are very different than Jews still have the gospel that he is coming to bring. And so we said in our main idea that in spite of her resistance, Jesus gives the Samaritan woman the Holy Spirit who changes her. How does the Holy Spirit change her? Well, I want us to think of that along the lines of the three things that were her obstacles. Because what I see in the text, or the way that the Holy Spirit changes her, is in direct response to those three obstacles to believing. Remember, her obstacles to believing were her background, her identity of who she was. It was her religious tradition, and it was her personal convenience. So I want you to see in the text how the Spirit of God changes her when Jesus gives her the living water, the Holy Spirit. First of all, the Spirit of God frees her from her self-identity problems, basically, if you want to think of it that way. The Holy Spirit is going to free her from that and is going to give her belief. She had a big barrier to believing because of who she thought she was, and the Holy Spirit will free her from that and give her belief. Look at verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I hope you sense by this point as her objections have changed, she's, her eyes are beginning to be opened. The Holy Spirit's beginning to open her eyes to who Jesus is. And she's beginning to realize that these claims he's making here are claims that only the Messiah can make. And I love Jesus' response, but our English clouds a little bit. Jesus said to her, verse 26, I who speak to you am he. The word he is nowhere in the original Greek. It literally reads, if you want to read the original language, it literally reads, I who speak to you, I am. I hope that kind of alerts your attention. I am statements of Jesus that are all throughout John. The I am statement of this text is not I am living water, because Jesus is saying I'm giving the living water. That's the Holy Spirit. The I am statement here is the one who speaks to you, I am. She's asking about the Messiah. He's saying I am the Messiah here. And as she hears this, the Spirit of God opens her eyes to really believe that this long-awaited Messiah really is Jesus. And we see that by her response. Look at verses 28 and 29. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Friends, her, again, notice this here. Her concerns have been so about her personal convenience. She was all about getting her water jar filled up when she wouldn't feel shame, doing it and not being bothered along the way here. She's so now wrapped up in that she's found the Messiah. She leaves her water jar. She doesn't even take it back with her. She envisioned her running back, leaving the water, because she's no longer worried about her personal convenience of getting this water jar filled. She's found the Messiah and goes to let people know. It's basically her invitation to them is a simple one of come and see. And so we see the Holy Spirit opening her eyes and freeing her from this this self-identity that keeps her from believing to giving her belief. But her second obstacle to the gospel here was her religious tradition. And this Holy Spirit overcomes that and makes her a worshiper. The Holy Spirit frees her from her religious tradition and makes her a worshiper. Now we have to infer a little bit from the text here, so bear with me on this one. But look at verses 21 through 24. In verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, friends, we could do a whole sermon on that. That, that is rich right there, those four verses. And I pray the day will come we'll have an opportunity just to pull those four verses out and do a whole sermon just on this of what it means to worship and in spirit or truth. But what's going on here? Jesus is showing her this whole debate she raises that the location of worship is not important. That's what the debate is over for the Jews and the Samaritans, but that's not what's going on. Why? Because when Jesus comes and Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, he makes his people into the temple. The location of the temple becomes irrelevant in the new age that Jesus dawns here for us because God's people are the temple. And again, we need a whole sermon five, but go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 if you want to read about that, or Ephesians chapter 2, and again, we'll have, we'll have opportunities in the future to talk more about that. So the location is not important because things have changed now, but what is important is two things he shows her. You have to worship in spirit, you have to worship in truth. Now again, what does that mean? Again, we can do a whole sermon on that, but to worship in spirit, this is referring to our spiritual being. We are body, soul, and spirit. We're tripartite, but there's three parts to us as I understand it. This is worshiping in our spirit. We're worshiping God with the right attitude deep within. Friends, worship is not how high we lift our hands, how loud we sing, that we can legitimately express God, express worship to God that way. Worship is a heart attitude. We can come in here and do all the externals and have our hearts really far from God. We also come in here and we may look kind of somber on the outside, but if our hearts are rejoicing within, that's what God sees. God looks in the heart, not on outward appearances. And worshiping the spirit is a reminder to worship God from deep within, to worship him from our spirits with a right attitude. But we second of all, we're to worship him in truth. This means we worship God in the way he appointed. Friends, it is not our job to decide how we worship God. God has told us, God is holy. God has revealed to us how we are to worship him, and we must worship him as he has revealed himself to us in the way that he has told us to worship him. And in light of all this, of Jesus telling this to her, look back at verse 23, because this is what ultimately Jesus is doing, and he's sending the Holy Spirit to do in her life. Verse 23, but the hour is coming, and it's now here, even for her, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For, and don't miss this phrase, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Was the divine necessity, the divine must for Jesus to go through Samaria? Because the Father has sent him to call out worshipers for God. He's here to draw out worshipers in that, just as he's calling her to do this very thing. So the Holy Spirit, the living water that Jesus gives to this woman at the well, frees her from her bondage to religious tradition and makes her into a worshiper who can worship God in spirit and in truth. But briefly here, the third obstacle she had was her convenience. She was just interested in not having to go back to the well again. She didn't want to have to carry those, those jars. But notice that the Holy Spirit frees her from that self-focus and gives her an outward focus. The Holy Spirit makes her a bold witness. This lady who knows very little, all of a sudden now, and who's been so caught up in her own convenience now, is a bold witness for others. Look back at verses 28 through 30. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Christ made such an impression on her, she left her water jar, and she ran to tell people, come see this Christ. This should remind you back to John chapter 1, the call of the earliest disciples. If you think about when Jesus called a disciple, what was the first thing they did? They went and found one of their friends or a brother. Come see this one. And I think it was Drew summarized it really well. This is a, a simple invitation. You know, this is, I mean, this is just come and see. And people did come and see. We'll get to it in more depth next week, but look, go ahead and jump down to verse 39. And look at what happens as a result of her bold witness. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, 
because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. Friends, this lady who was all wrapped up in herself and her sin and her identity and what other people thought about her and her shame and her convenience and her tradition and her beliefs, all of a sudden has been freed from all that in one moment. Not because of anything she did, but because she received the living letter. She received the Holy Spirit, and now her focus is on telling others as well. Friends, when we experience the Holy Spirit in our lives, it just naturally flows, to, I should say supernaturally flows, to share that with other people. And so as we pull this together, realize that in spite of her resistance, Jesus gives a Samaritan woman living water, the Holy Spirit, who changes her. Jesus gives the gift of the Holy Spirit and takes a lady who is bound up in her identity of her culture and her sin, and it makes her a believer. Jesus gives her the living water of the Holy Spirit, takes a woman who is bound up in her religious tradition and frees her from that and makes her into a worshiper. Jesus gives this woman living water of the Holy Spirit, who takes a woman who is all about self and convenience and frees her and makes her into a person who focuses on others and is concerned about the wit- her witness to other people. Like I tell you week after week, the Gospel of John is not just nice stories. It's something that demands questions of us. And so the question for you is, and for myself as well as we work through this is where are we in the story? Because you see here this lady in two stages of her life, either one who's fighting God, resisting God, or one who's been overcome by the grace of God and is experiencing the living water that's changed her. And so the fundamental starting point question for us before we ever come to the Lord's Supper and observe communion this morning is this. Are you at the place that you're still resisting God? Are you still resisting Him because of God can't forgive me for what I did or because of you know, my identity. I'm, I'm too smart to believe in God or whatever it is. What is it that's your background that's keeping you from following you and your identity? What about her resistance in terms of being more religious? Is, your, is the obstacle to the gospel for you the fact that you're involved with church or you're doing all this good to, to engage the poor in the community, whatever it may be? Or is it something more? Is it something of personal convenience? You know, I just, I'm too busy to follow God. I'm too busy. I, I like my life the way it is. If you've never surrendered to Christ, the starting point question for you is, what is it that's keeping you from following him? And just a quick reminder here for you, if that is you, if you realize Jesus was very patient with her, drawing her, but he did call her out on her sin. He exposed her sin, which was incredibly painful, and especially a shame-based culture like this. Jesus brought her sin to the light. It took that to bring her to a breaking point. If you're one who is resisting still, what's it going to take for God to break you and bring you to a place of repentance. But if you're one who's been overcome by God's grace, you're like the woman by the end of the story is experiencing living water, experiencing the Holy Spirit, this text demands questions of you as well. And the fundamental question is, are you experiencing living water in your life right now? Are you experiencing the Holy Spirit in your life right now? Think back over the last week. Think of the hardest day you had last week. Think of the hardest situation you had last week. In the midst of that trial, in the midst of that frustration, in the midst of that disappointment, in the midst of whatever hardship it was, did you have the joy of the Holy Spirit still in your heart in the midst of that hardship? Did you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Did you have His joy? Were you still satisfied in the goodness of God of having living water in your life even though life wasn't going quite the way you wanted it to? Did you know He was right there with you? And I think that's one of the two questions that's demands of those of you who are in Christ. The other one, though, is the question of are you being changed by the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus gave her the living water, the Holy Spirit, not to leave her where she was in her sin, not to leave her self-absorbed, not to leave her focused on her convenience, not to leave her bound to her religious tradition, not to leave her with an identity outside of Christ. He, he gave her the Holy Spirit to change her, to make her a worshiper, to make her one who is living for the Lord and having the joy in the Lord. So the question again that bears to all of us is, are we being changed? Is our belief in Christ changing us? And that goes back to last week's question as well. 
of based on your life, based on what you're living, what does your life show about who you really believe Jesus is? Because if we really believe, friends, belief is not just praying a prayer. Belief is, belief is not going through religious emotions. Belief is a living relationship with our God who changes us and our lives are different because of it. And so as we come to communion, I want you to have those questions in mind. Are you experiencing living water? Are you experiencing the transformation that comes because you have the Holy Spirit, the third person that God had at work in your heart and life because of your belief in Christ and his grace being poured out into your life? And friends, if you are, there's much cause to rejoice and much cause to be thankful. But with that said, we need to be reminded as well that the gift that we receive of the Holy Spirit, though free to us, did not come without a cost. That we, all we have to do is receive, like we've seen throughout this text, and we saw with Nicodemus, being born from above is not anything that we can do. Receiving living water is nothing I can do to earn it or work for it. It's a gift from God that we receive by faith. But that gift that's free to us was incredibly costly because it cost Jesus suffering on the cross and dying for our sins. And even as we get ready for Easter, we're going to be thinking a lot more about that. And so, friends, if you're in Christ, as we come to communion, as we come to the Lord's table, we have a very strong visual reminder to us through the bread that is set before us, through the juice that is set before us of the body and blood of Christ. It reminds us that for our sins to be forgiven, for us to be given the gift of living water, Jesus' body had to be broken on the cross. His blood had to be poured out so that we might have forgiveness of sins. And so with the thought of living water in mind, with the questions of are we experiencing the joy and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, with the thoughts of what Jesus has caused you to be worshipers and to enjoy his presence and to be freed from the bondage of self to, to take the message to others, there's some questions for us to reflect on as we come to the Lord's table this morning. And with that in mind, I want to read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, as we come to this place this morning of taking the Lord's Supper, of taking the bread, of taking the juice, we're reminding ourselves, first and foremost here, of what Christ has done for us. The fact that we can experience loving water, we can have joy in the trials, that we can have God's presence every day is only because of the sacrifice of Christ. It's nothing that you and I could have earned. And we see in the symbol, the broken bread and the cup, the reminder of Jesus' body and blood. It's also a proclamation of our, of our expectation of his return. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We believe Jesus is coming back. And no matter how hard life is right now, there's a day coming when he's coming to ransom us and take us home. And we'll be freed from all the bondage of this world. And we prolong for that. And so not only do we remember his sacrifice, his first coming, we also long for his second coming. It's a proclamation of that. But also, it's also a time, friends, for reflection. It says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Friends, as we come to this, this is not a lighthearted thing. This is something that is designed just for the followers of Jesus. And so if you're one like the Samaritan woman early in our story today who is resisting the Lord, my plea with you is just stay where you're seated. There's no shame in doing that. This is something for those who've surrendered to Christ. 
who've let Christ give them living water, who've been born from above like we saw from Nicodemus just a few weeks ago. This is for those who've experienced that. And so if that's you, if you've experienced that, you are welcome to come participate. It doesn't matter if you're a member of Gateway or not. The question is, are you in Christ? And if you are in Christ, you are welcome to come observe this. Now, for those of you in Christ, my challenge to you would be to make sure you take some time to reflect. Because if you have known sin in your life that you're not dealing with, you should do some business with the Lord before you come take this. This is not something we take lightly and go back to our sinful patterns. This is something that should call us to remember the sacrifice of Christ and bring us to a place of repentance. And so as you, I'd encourage you, if you have issues in your life, sin issues that you've not been dealing with, when you get the elements, return to your seat and just pray and talk to the Lord and, and confess your sins to the Lord. Because he's promises if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so friends, I just encourage you, don't just come take this and go back to your seats and be done. Make sure you're, you're right with the Lord, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. Make sure your fellowship is restored by, through confession of anything going on in your life. And so some of our deacons are going to come, and the first people we're going to invite to come do the Lord's Supper after I pray are going to be the musicians, so they can come and receive the elements before they go play. And while they're coming in just a moment after I pray, I want you just to, to begin to quietly pray where you are, and then after the musicians receive the elements, then we'll, the deacons will lead you person by, or section by section to come receive them. But would you pray with me first? Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters. I'm thankful for the Gateway family. Lord, what a precious church family this is. Lord, I pray that today, that as we observe communion, as we observe the Lord's Supper, God, I ask that you would just let it come to life in our lives. That, God, we wouldn't do this out of just habit or ritual or religious tradition. God, we would do this to remember the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus that has given us a new life in Christ, that we might know you, O Lord, that we might have a living water, we might have the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we might be changed and transformed. So, Lord, I pray for that person here who perhaps has sin strongholds in life they've not been dealing with, would you use even the observance of the Lord's Supper this morning to bring them to a place of conviction and repentance? I'm going to pray for that person here who's never trusted Christ, seeing this visual symbol of the broken bread and the water or the, and the juice might be a symbol for them and a reminder of them of the gospel they've been hearing on Sunday mornings. You might use that to bring them to a place of faith and trust in Christ. And more for all of us, I pray you use this observance of communion not to be anything routine, but Lord, to be something that would lead us to thankfulness lead us to worship. Lord, you desire for us, you seek that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray that as we observe the Lord's Supper this morning, that it would truly be a time of us worshiping you in spirit and truth so that you might be glorified and we might find the joy that can only come from knowing you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me invite our musicians to come first.